Isaiah 40. So if you want to go there. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, and then also verses 27 through 31. All right, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stand. The word of the Lord will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. All right. <clears throat> well, we are uh, working through a series here in Advent, and again, if you're new to the idea of Advent, the word Advent means coming or arrival, and it's a time in historically the church has set aside the four Sundays before uh, Christmas Sunday to begin to anticipate uh, and remember the first coming of Jesus and also look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And it's a way for us to kind of get out of the, the tyranny of the urgency of uh, Hallmark's vision for our life and to be reoriented to uh, what it looks like to live in anticipation of God's coming kingdom as his, as his followers. And so we uh, are uh, taking time, as many have done throughout church history, to look at the book of Isaiah, probably one of the great uh, Advent texts. And uh, we spent the first week, two weeks ago, going uh, talking about Isaiah 9 and the idea of, of a light uh, entering into the darkness of our world. Um, last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 11. And then uh, this week, Isaiah 40, and then next week on uh, Eve of the Eve, we're going to look at, uh, quickly look at Isaiah chapter 35. So um, this situation here in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the, the, the first words here from the prophet Isaiah are words of comfort. 
right? And I think we all like comfort. We like people to say uh, comforting things to us. And, and God, through Isaiah, uh, we see three voices here crying out uh, in chapter 40. And the first one here is this word of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The idea, literally, the word there is speak to the heart of my people. Speak to their hearts. Encourage them. Cry to her that her warfare or struggle is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Before we jump into the comfort that God wants to give us, uh, that he was giving Israel, that he wants to give us an advent, um, I think we need to first step back and ask the question, why did they need to be comforted, right? That's kind of the question that's begging to be answered here, is why exactly did they need to be comforted? Um, in order to really receive comfort in advent, we have to first become uncomfortable. We have to face the discomfort that would lead us to find comfort in God. Uh, because if we don't do that, we're going to run to, I think, and we often will do this, run to a false comfort instead of really opening ourselves. Like this is one of those passages. It's so beautiful, right? If you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, these are, this is the opening line to Handel's Messiah, and it's been something that's been popularized. Uh, but it won't, uh, it won't move past sentimentality to like electrifying us and changing us Unless we understand how bleak, how dire, and how impossible the situation facing the original hearers was. And this, this word of comfort is not just like uh, a, a bunch of people who didn't get what they wanted for Christmas. Oh, you know, let, let comfort my people. Uh, this is not just people who had like a tough year uh, and, uh, and just kind of had a rough uh, time. Th- these are people for whom their entire social architecture was unraveling. Everything that they knew to be true about reality. I don't know if you've ever gone through one of those disorienting seasons where like every, every paradigm in your life, everything that seemed to make sense for you just begins to crumble. Uh, sometimes we call that college. Uh, sometimes we call that post-college. Uh, sometimes it's moving to a new city. Uh, sometimes uh, there's pain and, and maybe uh, something happens in your marriage or you uh, have a, a conflict of some sort. There are these moments in our life, these tectonic shifts, where everything we knew to be true begins to change, and all of a sudden we're thrust into confusion and maybe like a wilderness. And that's exactly what we see here in Isaiah chapter 40. So if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 is a transition. So you have chapters 1 to 39, uh, roughly kind of the narrative arc of, of Isaiah, 40 to 55, and then 56 to 66. And this is kind of right in the middle here. Um, and chapters 1 to 39, really, the two words that characterize Isaiah uh, all throughout, but particularly in the first 39 chapters, are judgment and hope, right? Judgment and hope. And it's interesting because the judgment doesn't come like we often think it should come. This is not like God fighting a culture war against the prevailing powers. Uh, the judgment actually right out of the gate in Isaiah chapter 1 starts with a stinging indictment against God's people. It's really, first and foremost, a judgment against God's people, right? God's saying, like, quit looking outside and trying to blame and scapegoat other people outside the church for your problems. Your biggest problem is you, right? And, like, God just kind of puts that right in uh, their face via Isaiah. And he calls out two things that are happening in the community. One is injustice, there's all kinds of injustice that's happening, um, and it's interesting because um, I know injustice and the word around justice, it, it's a trigger for some of us, and we think it's kind of like a political concept, but it's actually a biblical concept. The Bible talks a lot about justice and injustice, and what's fascinating in the book of Isaiah is that the injustices, the sins that are called out, 
are not uh, just the sins of the left or the sins of the right. They're not the Republican sins or the Democrat sins. Uh, they're actually the sins of both, right? They're progressive sins and they're conservative traditional sins. So he calls out uh, corruption, right? He calls out the oppression of the poor. He calls out greed uh, and the way that people are looking at money and wealth. Uh, but he also calls out sexual immorality, right? He calls out uh, the disruption of families, like one of the signs of uh, kind of uh, cultural implosion uh, in the prophets, and you see this in Malachi, is when families begin to fall apart. And so he calls out all of these sins, and he says, you need to face your injustice. There should be a discomfort because you have been oppressing people, right? Um, and then he also calls out idolatry. And he says, you, you've been, and, and again, we, we think of idolatry as just like, you know, wooden poles and all this kind of weird paganism, but it's really uh, forgetting God and then looking for somebody or something else to, uh, to kind of fix our problems, right? So there's this cycle in the Old Testament uh, where you see God will deliver people. There's a, like some kind of a miraculous deliverance starting in the book of Exodus. God delivers people out of the oppression of Egypt. He brings them miraculously into the promised land with all kinds of signs and wonders. And then immediately, like this is like the kind of amnesia uh, that we see with like, um, you know, New Year's, New Year's resolutions. Like, I'm going to change. Oh, and then like six weeks later, we're back in the pit. Like, this is the cycle. There's like this amnesia in the Old Testament where God delivers. And then as soon as they get into the promised land, all of a sudden they've forgotten God and they're going after other guys, literally sacrificing their children and engaging in all kinds of pagan, evil, wicked acts. They forget God. And, and it's not enough that they just forget God. The idolatry comes from they actually begin to place their hope, place their trust um, it's a good thing we don't do this anymore, in powerful people and powerful institutions. So it's not enough they forget about God. They say, no, what we need is a political ruler. What we need is a military uh, power. What we need is a, a powerful religious system that will protect us, right? And so they, they align themselves throughout the Old Testament with these foreign powers, Assyria, Babylon, different ones. You see that uh, in chapters like 30 to, 40, 30 to 39. And then, <clears throat> and then things just go bad, right? Like anytime we forget God, that's generally not a good thing. Uh, and so uh, things go sideways. They, they kind of, uh, they get into like a, some kind of a forced slavery or, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of like evil that breaks out, uh, plagues that happen. And then the crazy thing is they have the audacity to then blame God. So they forget God, they run to other powers, and they're like, God, how dare you, right? Like, again, good thing we don't do that uh, anymore. And so, like, in 27, in chapter 40, uh, Isaiah, responding to some of these charges, um, says, why do you say, O Jacob, why do you say, why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. And the sense here is, it's in the imperfect tense, like, God continues to dismiss my case. So it's like there's a courtroom scene, if you're an attorney, you'll get this, and and uh, Israel's kind of the plaintiff, and, and God's in the dock, right? God's on trial. And they, they as many of us do when, when, when we face hardship, they begin to go, God, where are you? Right? This, is, this is the kind of the hiddenness of God, the absence of God. God, where are you as I'm suffering? Where are you as I'm struggling? Where are you in the midst of this violent, chaotic, dark world? They begin to cry out to God and to blame him as we tend to. To do, But the real source, the crazy thing is, they are blind to the ways they have created this reality, right? The real source of their discomfort, the real source of their despair was themselves. They forgot God. They turned away from God looking for false comfort in other places and deliverance. 
and then God brings judgment. And that's really what chapter 40 is about, is God, Isaiah, looking into the future and seeing this captivity. So at the time, the dominant superpower was Assyria. Uh, Assyria was going to be displaced in a couple of decades, and Babylon would rise to power. And at the end of chapter 39, we see in verse 6, if you want to read it there, uh, the prophet Isaiah says to King Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away, They will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Uh, That's not good. Uh, Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, this is how bad, this is how wicked and and decrepit this thing is. Notice what Hezekiah says. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Why is it good? Because he thought to himself, there will be peace and security in my days. Self-interest. This is kind of the climate, the atmosphere. We see, then God speaks this word of comfort. And I want us to just kind of stop and pause there because um, we need to be uncomfortable like this in order to receive comfort, right? We don't want to just skate through and have kind of a superficial comfort. And I think in the church, oftentimes, we have a hard time talking about how hard life is, right? And so we need to see two realities that I think they saw that will help us receive and really cry out for the kind of comfort that God is offering here, right? Because otherwise, this stuff's just irrelevant, right? Like you come to church and it's like, yeah, yeah, you're gonna get up and talk and I gotta go to the candlelight service and we do that, right? Like in the Midwest, it's like you go to church and there's no desperation, right? It's just like I gotta check the boxes because my wife wants me to come, because my kids want me to come, because grandma's gonna be there. Um, Like there's no sense of like this really hitting us where there's static in our lives. And so, um, a couple things that we need to see here, uh, a, a couple of pieces of discomfort that we need to face. One is that life is exile. Life is exile. Life is a struggle. He says, speak this to people that are in warfare. Life, it's been said, love is a battlefield, right? Life, life is a battle, right? There's some of you know what I'm talking about there, some of you don't. Life is distress. Life is despair. These words here um, all basically mean the same thing. One of the first realities about Advent is it's a threat because it disrupts our comfort. It reminds us that we can't live in a Pollyanna world, even in the church. We can't pretend like we click our heels and there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. We live in a broken world. We are broken people, uh, even the church. And Isaiah would say, first and foremost, the church is one of the kind of centers of injustice and idolatry. And the more we are disconnected from that reality, the less Advent will be good news for us. Advent is a threat because it pierces the illusions of our comfort strategies in the church. Our our comfort strategies, right? Like this idea, this naive optimism that we have, that like everything's okay, and as long as we're gathered in here, you know, like big bad evil forces can't touch us. Um, and the reality is, man, like we, we know this to be true. If we open up our eyes, we see the brokenness in the world. We see the fact that this world is not the way that God designed it. Even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, there's something deep in you that knows this is not the way the world is supposed to work. The world is supposed to be about love. The world is supposed to be about kindness, about serving one another, about getting along, right? Like about harmony, about a, a symphony. And that's not our experience in the world. 
Like, the age of naive optimism, I don't have to convince you of this, right? Like, the age of naive optimism is dead. We spent most of the latter half of the 20th century trying to build a utopia, thinking that if we could just defeat the big bad powers, right, like Germany and Russia, uh, you know, like, we're not part of the problem, right, but like the other world powers out there, then we could build some kind of utopian human community. And then what happened? World War II happened, Vietnam happened, the, the post-Berlin Wall happened, the Iraq War happened, like all of these things happened. Now we have a, a culture that has moved from, I would say, an age of naive optimism to an age of outrage, right? Like we live in a, an age of outrage. The dominant mood is cynicism and despair and snark and, you know, uh, I grew, I'm a Gen Xer. We were all about irony. This is, this is not irony anymore, right? This is, this is just hardcore cynicism and renewed violence in the sense that everything we thought to be true when we were kids about the world all of a sudden doesn't feel right again. And in response, just like the Israelites, we're tempted to kind of double down on pursuing comfort in ways that never bring true comfort, right? We double down on what I'll call the promises of human power, right? Like if we can just align ourselves with with human power, we can have better strategies, if we could uh, be better funded, if we could be better educated, then we'll figure it out. And, and we've talked about this a lot, so I don't want to you know, belabor this uh, over the last couple years, but I see two primary responses to this, um, this, uh, this state that we live in in terms of how we try to pursue comfort. On the one hand, we have those of us that just, we get angry, right? And, that, and our strategy is revenge. We double down on human power and we say, I'm going to get even. I'm going to get back. I'm going to get mad. I'm going to punch back the bullies in uh, the face, and so we find a scapegoat, right? And we target them, and we humiliate them, and there's this kind of humiliation with no possibility of forgiveness or redemption. And it's just ugly. Blame casting, violence, political maneuvering, right? And we kind of live and die on like four-year cycles and two-year cycles and, and Twitter binge and all this kind of stuff. We shame. Or some of us, maybe we just check out, we retreat. Right, like I went to uh, John Legend concert with my parents uh, last week, and uh, man, it's like John Legend can sing about toilet paper. I'm in, right? Like it doesn't matter what he's singing, it's good. But I, I uh, kind of joked; it was kind of awkward because I, I thought he was going to be singing more like traditional Christmas songs. I'm kind of out of touch. He has a new Christmas album, and uh, it really was more of like a John Legend, a not traditional Christmas, more of like a John Legend dirty Christmas. Uh, because it was all about romance, and, uh, which is kind of awkward when you're sitting next to your mom and dad. Uh, I, I told them that too. Uh, but they're here in the front row, and my dad is. But, uh, but it was like, it was like uh, all of our problems are going to be fixed. It's like, baby, like the world's broken, but I'm going to hop on a plane, and I'm going to be back, and I'm going to get here on time, and daddy's going to show up, and the fire's going to be warm, and we're going to cuddle up, and all kinds of other things because my kids are in the room that we can't talk about here. But it was like, wow. Like, I love the musical aesthetic of it, but the message is sad. When you actually, like, step back to look at the message, it's like, we're just going to deny that, like, the world is a really broken place, and the solution is going to be romance, right? And all of us who are over the age of 30 are like, uh, yeah, right, you know, like, we're kind of, we're, we know that's not true, you know, wink, wink. But we still try to convince ourselves that it is, and we look to these superficial comforts. Maybe it's not romance for you. Maybe it's your money. You know, if I can just make enough money, I can kind of cordon off a little cloister over here where I don't have to feel the brokenness of the world. 
Maybe it's technology, you just check out. Maybe it's hyper-individualism, and you just, you know, like, I don't care about the world as long as I'm good or my family's good. Both of these responses distort reality, though, right? Like, they don't bring comfort. They give us a false sense of comfort. It doesn't change anything in our own souls. Matter of fact, I would argue those responses are, are, are ratcheting up levels of anxiety, right? Like, we know that anxiety is at an all-time high in the world, and I would argue that's because, in a lot of ways, we refuse to face reality. These responses downplay our contributions to what's broken in the world, and they exaggerate our ability to bring about our own healing. So life is exile. We too have forgotten God. Just like Israel, the exile is self-imposed. We have all created this world in which we live, right? Like now certainly there are multi-generational things at work and there's all, but the reality is all of us are complicit. All of us have forgotten God. We've looked for liberation in powerful people and powerful institutions. We are in exile. We're not home. We're not exempt from this reality. If anything, I think right now what I've noticed, I was talking to a friend of mine last night uh, at dinner and we were just talking about kind of the spiritual climate of Midtown. So some of you guys live in Midtown, some of you don't. But it's been interesting kind of coming into Midtown. I've lived here uh, in Indy for seven years, five of those years in Midtown. And we were just talking about how there just is a mood of cynicism right now among church people. Like all, now, now, so this is going to mean nothing. If you're in your 20s, just file this away for later because this doesn't mean anything to you. But as you get into your 40s and 50s, what we're noticing with a lot of our friends is people mass, like leaving the church in mass exodus um, and not only leaving the church, but mad, mad as they leave the church. They're wounded. And my friend last night, um, who's probably nine years older than me, he's lived in Broderbill for 20 years, he said something along these lines. I am mad. I am wounded. He said it strongly. I am mad. I am wounded. And I have no hope that it's going to get any better. There's like this spiritual depression here. And both of us kind of looked at each other and we were like, and he's a follower of Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice if God would just send a revival? That's like an old school word that we don't really talk about. But like, what would it look like for God to awaken us and to give us a sense of hopefulness? It doesn't seem very real for many of us. So life is exile, and, and we're powerless to do anything about it. That's the hardest truth, right? Like to confront an advent is like, I can't fix it. Right? Our attempts to push back the darkness are temporary and vulnerable, right? There's a fragility. Look, notice in chapter 40, uh, verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He's setting up a contrast here between what he calls flesh and God. Flesh is just another word for people, right? Like human strategies, human competency, human progress, human potential. What he's saying is that no matter how hard we try, all of our best efforts don't amount to jack, basically. Like everything we're trying to do to change the world, uh, just like you laugh at your grandparents and you can't believe it, some, it's like some of the things that they say and some of the ways they do church and some of the things they try to do in their time to fix the world the best that they knew how, like Here's a little bit of a, a PSA. Uh, your kids and grandkids are going to think the same thing about you. My kids and grandkids probably already think, my kids, I don't have grandkids, my kids probably already think the same thing about me. My grandkids will certainly be laughing at me going, really? Like this is how you guys looked at the world? This is what you thought was normal? This is what you thought was going to be helpful in terms of the church? 
We lack the vision. We lack the wisdom. We lack the resources. We lack the permanence to bring about the kind of healing, right? No matter how much education, no matter how much we invest in, uh, you know, political systems, like it just seems like we're caught in this cycle and we're powerless to rescue ourselves from it. But here's the thing. That's exactly where God wants us to be, right? That's the entry point, in my opinion. That's the opportunity for the church in Advent is that we recognize we can't. The more we try, we're like little three-year-olds, you know, trying to clean up our, our, our uh, yogurt mess on the table. It's like the more we try, the more we spread it and just make it worse and make it stickier, right? Like anybody who has parents of young children knows what I'm talking about, right? We make it worse. But if we will allow ourselves to lean into the weakness, to lean into the struggle, to lean into the powerlessness and the failure of human potential and human progress, in human strategies, in human power, we are now ready to receive the comfort of Advent. Only then are we ready to receive the comfort of Advent because we realize there is no saving ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a, who's a German pastor under the Third Reich and was eventually executed by Hitler, wrote a letter in 1943 to his best friend. And uh, he's talking about the Advent season, and here's what he says. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this or that or the other. Things that are really of no consequence in terms of ultimate salvation. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. And that's where we find ourselves in Advent, banging on the door. God, we can't rescue ourselves. God, we can't heal ourselves. God, we don't have what it takes to change the city. Only you can. And the good news of Advent is that God promises to be the one with the key to come in and to rescue. So how does God do that? How does God provide real comfort, right, in the midst of our despair and our brokenness and our chaos? He speaks comfort to us. He speaks to our hearts, and he says brokenness and misery does not have the final word. It just doesn't, right? Like he's inviting us to see that his deepest intention for us as his people in the midst of a broken world is comfort, liberation, release, and and really bringing us home, um, drawing near to us in our struggle and our failure. Notice what he says in verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. What good news can there be in the midst of exile in Babylon where we've been completely destroyed? Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He says, I want you just to stop. Pause. Lift your vision. Stop looking for comfort in circumstance. Stop looking for comfort in your work. Stop looking for comfort in your marriage. Stop looking for comfort with your children. Stop looking for comfort in your ability to bring about some kind of transformation in your city and being woke. Stop looking for comfort in your avoidance and retreat of those things. Stop looking for comfort around you and look up. Behold, look at, gaze, ponder, stare at, be amazed by your God. 
We don't do that very well, right? He's saying, switch the optics here. Your optics are narrow. Look up. Expand your horizon. Expand the borders of your heart to see God. See him as he is. What we are powerless to bring about with human strategy and human power and potential, God's already done. He's already done it, and he still continues to do it, right? God is the central actor in Isaiah. He is the lead character throughout the book of Isaiah. This will not happen. This is feeble. This is frail. This is undependable. Don't place your hope over here, but God, right? Like, God will do this. It's God's purposes. It's his strength. It's his might. It's his arm. It's his plans. It's his timing. It's his agenda. He has not forgotten about you And that's why he's kind of saying, like, have you forgotten? Like, he's kind of like shaking them, going like, have you not heard? Of course you have, but you've forgotten. Look at all these characteristics that he lays out. I mean, I wish we had time just to, like, dig in through the whole chapter. It's really just a defense of how big and amazing and mighty and powerful God is. We forget that, right? We live as if God doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the vision, doesn't have the ability to follow through on his promises. But notice some of the things he says. He, he, he points us to the grace of God, right? Behold your God. What kind of God do we serve, right? What's he capable of? We forget. He's a God of grace. Look in chapter 40, uh, verses one to two, or verse two. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity or her sin has been pardoned, given, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, um, the wrong way this has been preached uh, oftentimes is that the double for all her sins is double punishment. But when you actually look in the Hebrew here, the doubling here is not modifying punishment, it is modifying the payment that's been made for us. And we go on to see through the rest of chapters 40 to 55 that the one who provides the payment is the suffering servant, Jesus himself. And so God is saying, you have received double grace. You received a double portion, right? Your sin earned you this, but I've done this, right? God is a gracious God, right? He gives us double what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us mercy, and he makes the payment for us that we cannot make for ourselves. He takes away our sin, and he credits to our account his righteousness. So not only does he take away our sin, he makes us righteous, completely, fully, holy. We see his power in verses 3 to 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. It'll, It'll be something that's unexpected. And all flesh, all people everywhere will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This idea of preparing a way um, in ancient cultures, when you had an emperor visiting or a king or a diplomat visiting, they would go and they would smooth out the roads and make sure that there was no possibility of the, the royal carriage breaking down on the roads. And this is the idea here. But the thing is, we don't prepare the way of the Lord. Notice that God's the one that prepares his own way. All this is in the passive, right? All this is not things that, these are not things that we do. These are things that God does. God is going to take every valley and he's going to lift it up. That's kind of a reference. This is not like um, uh, geography he's talking about here. This is spiritual topography. 
So he's saying those who are depressed, those who are marginalized, those who are down and out, those who have been forgotten, they're going to be raised up. They're going to be given status. They're going to be exalted. They're going to be honored at the feast of God one day. And those, he says, that are mountains, those who are high up, who've exalted themselves, who are proud, who are arrogant, they're going to be brought low. They will be humbled. The proud will be humbled. The weak will be exalted in the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about here. God is powerful enough to make that happen. And what seems to be on the wrong side of history today will be on the right side of God's history one day, and vice versa. God, we see his power. We see his stability, right? Like he doesn't change. We read that verse. The word of God stands forever. He's not going to change. God's not into fads, right? God doesn't change as the times change. He is fixed and he stays our north star. He can be trusted because he doesn't change. He's tender, right? Verse 11, we see that he gathers up his people like lambs in his arms. He carries us like helpless children. Our weakness doesn't push God away. Our weakness attracts God. He says here that we are his reward. He has his reward with him. What's God's reward? It's you, me. He gathers us up and he carries us forward when we can't carry ourselves. He's holy, he's unique, he's unrivaled. That's verses 12 through 26. He's wise, right? He sees things that we can't see. He understands things that we can't see. He holds together, like, all, everything that's happening in the universe, God is seeing it and holding it all together. We have limited perspectives, right? If we've learned anything over the last 10 years is we have a tremendous amount of cultural bias. God has no cultural bias. He sees everything as it is, and he will act in ways that are consistent with what's in the best interest of people in his own purposes so first thing we see is behold your god second thing quickly here is waiting for god right how do we receive comfort we see god as he really is we see how powerful and how mighty he is how big he is how capable he is of doing what we can't do for ourselves and as we see him it then gives us confidence this is kind of from a human perspective to wait to slow down to trust him right in very practical ways. Notice verses 30 to 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men will get exhausted, right? Like, you're at your peak. This is kind of the idea of an Olympic athlete here in the language. At the peak of their game, even that person will get exhausted. They will get tired. They will break down, right? Like, the ears grow, the body shrinks, you get hair in weird places. Like, this is the circle of life, right? Like, it's going to happen. It's happening to all of us. We break down, but, here's the exception, he says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, the strength inside of them, the actual inner person, the one that's, that's really, that, that eternal piece of you, right? Like your person, that will be renewed with strength. You will mount up with wings like eagles. You will run and not be weary. You shall walk and not be faint. Waiting on God is a huge theme in the book of Isaiah, right? I, I, I counted at least nine times uh, in, in kind of the heart of Isaiah, where he talks about waiting. Let me, there's a bunch of examples. You can look at chapter 8 if you want to write these down, chapter 25, chapter 26. I'll read you the one in chapter 30 because I think it's amazing. Uh, chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious. God is patient waiting on us. He waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, I realize who I'm talking to here. 
a bunch of Americans mostly. Waiting is not anything resembling an, a, a virtue in the West, right? Like, if anything, waiting is a vice, right? Like, there's not been a time ever in your life where you've had a conversation with somebody and you're talking about waiting and you're like commending them for their waiting, okay? Like, you walk into your office, you know, and you've got like a direct report or a coworker. How's it going? Like, you know, we got this project. How's it going? Just waiting on the Lord, man. You know, like waiting on that sale to come in. I'm just praying. No, like that's the point at which you fire them or you put them on some kind of a personal growth plan. And like, you know, you're like, no, no, speed up. Like, go faster. You don't sell like bad. Like, you're not talking to a parent. How's it going? Just waiting on the Lord. Like, I'm sitting in my prayer closet. Kids are going, I'm just waiting on God. That's awesome. No, that, that conversation's not happening, right? We in, the, we in America, uh, like, you know, how's it going with the city, right? Like, uh, you're just waiting on God to show up and do what he does in the city of Indianapolis. In that case, it's almost like, how dare you wait? right? Like, how dare you slow down? Don't you know that there's injustice? Don't you know that there's oppression? How dare you, like, not, you know, do X, Y, Z? What do we value in the West? Speed, right? Speed, efficiency, competency. We put our hope in those things. If I can just go faster, if I can be smart enough, if I can be educated enough, if I can see the complexity and be an adaptive leader, then we'll be able to uh, fix things. I read a lot of business literature uh, this week on speed, and uh, like it's everywhere. Right? If you read Forbes, if you read any like business magazines or uh, business articles, speed is a thing. Uh, some people have called it the cult of speed. I found one resource on being slow in business. You want to know what it is? It's a book by a journalist that probably none of you have read because you would never buy this book. Uh, a guy named Carl Honorere called In Praise of Slowness. Now tell me, you would, like, you would see that on Amazon and be like, what a sissy book. Like, that is not American at all. You would not buy that book. Like, hey, here's a Christmas gift. I bought you In Praise of Slowness. Uh, but here's what he says about this. Just, just from a cultural standpoint, speed has helped to remake our world in ways that are wonderful and liberating. Speed's not bad. Who wants to live without the internet or jet travel? You're like, I used to live when they didn't have that. Um, the problem is that our love of speed, our obsession with doing more and more in less and less time has gone too far. It has turned into an addiction, a kind of idolatry. Here's a non-Christian talking and using biblical language. Even when speed starts to backfire, we invoke the go faster gospel, we double down. This is where our obsession with going fast and saving time leads. Road rage, air rage, shopping rage, relationship rage, office rage, vacation rage, gym rage. Thanks to speed, at least in part, we live in the age of rage. I'm going fast. If you're in my way, either move or get run over. We bring that into church. We bring that into our relationship with God. I want it done now. Fix this right now. I was talking to a guy after the first service. Um, he just got awarded a big project, a big contract. He works in renewable energy. He's been working on this project for 10 years. I was like, I don't even have a category. I was 28. I wouldn't even live in Indianapolis 10 years ago, and I certainly wasn't thinking about a project. Fleming Rutledge, theologian, says this about Advent. The theme of waiting and watching that permeates the Advent season strikes a false note with, note with us. We give lip service to it, but we don't take it very seriously. 
We don't want to sit around watching and waiting. We want to speed things up. We want to move things along. If God isn't going to bring the kingdom, we'll bring it ourselves. That's so true. I think that's our American way. I think we need to ask ourselves seriously, what are we going to do with this tiresome Advent refrain about watching and waiting? I don't know if you struggle to wait. I struggle to wait. I am impatient. I am about speed. I want it done now. But here's the thing. I think we avoid waiting because we don't understand what waiting means biblically. When you hear the word waiting, you immediately think of passivity and not doing anything, right? You think of somebody in the lotus position, meditating, hum, you know, like that's what we think of when we think of maybe some of us when we think of waiting or slowing down. But here's the thing. In the Bible, waiting is active, not passive. Fleming Rutledge, again, calls it action and waiting. That's kind of the idea. Action and waiting and waiting that always leads us to action. Doesn't, the, the, those two things are friends. They're not opposites. So the idea here is kind of what you see in 2 Peter chapter 3, if we can fill that verse up. Verse 11, uh, Peter, writing to exiles, says the same thing. Verse 12, waiting for, since all these things are about to happen in terms of God renewing the world, what kind of posture ought we have in the world? Waiting for and hastening, accelerating. So there's this tension, waiting and accelerating. Okay, which is it, Peter? Is it go fast or go slow? Yes, okay? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of, the God, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He saw no problem talking about action and waiting together. So the kind of waiting we're talking about here when we wait on the Lord is not a waiting that doesn't do anything. It's not a waiting that's passive. It's not a waiting that just steps back while the earth is kind of burning, so to speak. Um, it doesn't mean we don't do anything. It just means we, when we act, we act as if God is going to show up. And it's kind of like, what's your first movement, right? Is your first movement, maybe you're an action person, uh, and maybe your first movement is to go out and fix something. And so what he's saying here is, what if your first movement was to wait on God and to assume that he had this under control and to cry out to him and to be desperate and humble before him and what if that was your first movement? Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to go act. It just means I'm waiting on God. I look to God first. I pray to God first before I get on Twitter, before I get on social media, before I, I, I get out of my neighborhood and I get vocal, which are all appropriate things at times. But the first movement is I say, God, I can't do this without you. I am weak and helpless. My, my energy is not renewable, and I need your strength to carry me through. God, would you give me discernment? God, would you give me wisdom to see what I can't see? Maybe I'm missing something here. Because I don't know about you, but I look out at the conversations that are happening right and left and the polarization that's happening in our world. It's like the solutions and the conversations are too simple to account for all the complexity of human beings in the world and the problems that we're experiencing. But it's not too, it's not too complex for God. So the first movement is I wait on him and then I move. The opposite of waiting would be unbelief. I don't believe that God can do it. It would be cynicism. It would be anxiety. Because I don't think that God's going to show up. It would be impatient toil. I just got to do something to do something so people know that I'm the kind of person who does something. It's a belief that God will bring comfort. That God will show up. That God will deliver. 
that the God who created all things will one day recreate everything. When we know that God, when we're convinced that there is a future where God is going to deliver and he's going to rescue, rescue, we act differently. Fleming Rutledge says that again. A prisoner who knows he's freed is going to act differently. A person who's going to be delivered as a hostage is going to act differently. A person who has chemotherapy and believes it's going to help them is going to act differently. Advent is like that. It is celebrating this dual reality that God has already acted definitively on our behalf. He sent Jesus to live the life that we couldn't live, to die our death, and to rise from the dead. The most miraculous Advent has already happened. God has already intervened. We live on the other side of the exile in a different kind of exile, but we've seen what God can do in the past. And we believe that God will act again definitively in the future to bring his purposes to pass once and for all, even if it doesn't make sense to us. It's like jazz, right? Advent's jazz. Some of you hate jazz. One person said, uh, listening to jazz is like playing Scrabble without any vowels. It's maddening, right? Because it's not linear. Some of you love linear. And, and jazz is all about do-do-do-do-do, you know, it's like all these riffs and all these runs and all this kind of art and poetry and, and, and it's crazy. But here's the thing, it, it can seem at times like, like very dissonant when you're listening to jazz. But you know, if you know anything about jazz, you know there's a pianist that's kind of guiding and shaping and orchestrating, orchestrating and making sure that in the end, all of the tensions are going to be resolved. And they eventually bring it to a resolution. And you're like, ah, jazz. That's what it's like to live in Advent. It's like God's over there going, do, 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 do. And you're like, what are you doing? I got it, you know? And he's bringing all things to resolution. So we can wait for him. We can trust him. He knows what he's doing, even if we don't. God's people are awaiting people. Always have been. Always have been. Waiting and hastening hastening and waiting. Sometimes it takes hours in the Bible for God to show up. Sometimes it takes days. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes generations. But God always shows up. He always vindicates. He always delivers. He always comforts. Think about the disciples, right? Friday, nothing happened. Saturday, nothing happened. Sunday, something pretty awesome happened. God rose from the dead, right? Defeating death and sin and hell. But even then, Jesus then goes away, and they're like, what? We thought you were going to establish the kingdom. Now they're waiting again, and they all die, Hebrews 11 says, in faith, but holding on to the promise that Jesus will come again. That's what it looks like to live in the tension of Advent. Behold your God. Receive his comfort and assurance. Wait on God. He will deliver. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy.